Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to enter our message. We're in Revelation 22. It's the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. Those of you just joining us this morning, either online or here as a guest, we've been walking through the book of Revelation for some time. So we're now at the last chapter. So if you're just here for the first time and this is your first chance to get into Revelation with us, I, I believe you'll get a lot out of it. But those of us who've gone through this um, have a lot of questions still. It's a lady by the name of Henrietta Green. In 1864, she inherited $1 million from her father. That's a lot of money in 1864. It's a lot of money now. She began to invest that money in bonds. But all the time that she invested that money and had that money, she lived like a pauper. She worked at the same bank all through her life. She wore the same clothes every day to that bank. She ate the same lunch. Every day she would take a ham sandwich, put it in her grubby, dirty pocket, and at lunchtime, pull that out, and that's all she ate. She had a son that was injured in a sledding accident. She took him to the charity ward to have free medical care. They recognized her there and wouldn't take the son because they knew she could pay. She refused to go anywhere else. She was such a miser. She wouldn't take her son to another doctor. She said, I'll take care of him myself. The wound festered. And ultimately, her son had to have his leg amputated. When she died, she was worth well over $100 million and lived her life like a pauper. I was in uh, college and about to graduate. And I know that some of you are there. You're finishing up some degrees. And congratulations on your grad degrees, your undergrad degrees. And I remember in my undergrad, we had to take an oral exam um, at the end of course, I, I found it interesting that Albert Moeller talked about the fact that it looks like that's going to be more the case in lots of classes today because of all the websites and AI out there that helps people cheat. The oral exams will be maybe what is more common. In an oral exam, you can be asked anything. And so I was so nervous, so nervous. So I studied, 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 studied. And all the questions that were asked were pretty easy. I thought, wow, this is great. I was more prepared than I needed to be. But I was asked a question I wasn't prepared for at the end. We have one last question for you. This may be the most difficult question. I thought, okay, here it goes. Here was the question. What's the most important lesson you've learned in your college experience? And I wasn't prepared for that that, that, that question, but I immediately answered. I said, what I've learned through my experience in studying theology is there's a lot I don't know. And my professors laughed and they said this, and I'll never forget, that's one of the best answers we've received. Because when I went to college, I didn't know what I didn't know. And when I left college, I knew that I had a lot left to learn. And how do I do that? And I have to go forward on this. And that's the way I think Revelation is a little bit. Revelation is all this information, and you're piling it up, and you go, what do I do with this? There's a lot here that I've learned. There's a lot I have yet to learn. What do I do with it? Well, what you don't do is live like a pauper. What you want to do, and what I want to do, is take all of this information that we've had from Revelation, this revelation about Jesus Christ, and employ it in everyday life. This is not just for the sweet by and by, it's for the nasty now and now. It is right now that we can take this information and do something with it. Blessed is the one, we've read already, blessed is the one who keeps this prophecy, keeps the words of this prophecy. So in the book of Revelation, we've learned several, several important matters. We've learned that the enemy's real and he's powerful, but hallelujah, he's defeated. We can see the world as it really is under the sway of the enemy and it's passing. 
Well, we learned in Revelation. We learned in Revelation. There's going to be a new earth. There's going to be a new earth. This earth is going to be recreated. We view people as they really are. Precious in the sight of God. Souls that will live forever, either in heaven or in hell. We begin to see ourselves more who we are. And, this is beautiful, what we one day will be. We're like Newton. We're not what we want to be, but praise God, we're not what we were. So when you look at the book of Revelation, you go, what do I do with this? Well, let's think about John for a minute, who received this revelation. Who after seeing incredible sights, hearing from the Lord and from an angel about what is to come, must have been so overwhelmed. He couldn't express in the first century what he saw. We couldn't express in the 21st century what was seen. What heaven's going to be like is beyond our imagination. It's beyond our current situation. There is no amount of information now we have at our disposal to be able to explain what glory will be. But John would have went back to his barrack likely, his prison cell, damp and dank, and there sit down and have hope and help from the revelation that this is not all there is. So I want us to think about Revelation for a few minutes, about what it says concerning our current situation. We recognize there's a real enemy. And don't you recognize that the devil is running through this world, seeking whom he may devour? Otherwise, how do you explain how a man with an AR leaves his yard, walks into a house, and takes the lives of five precious people? This is a common experience in our world. It's not new. This is the world in which the devil is swaying and living and ruling. This earth is under the sway of the enemy, but we learn in Revelation, he is a defeated enemy, and one day he is a hell-bound enemy, and will be cast into the lake of fire, and will be there forever and ever and ever, and will never have to be bothered by a demon or the devil ever again. This world is passing, but we're to occupy till the Lord comes. We're to see the world as it is. We like this world. We like what God has given us in this world. But this world is just an appetizer for the main course. It is a cloudy, it's simply a cloudy uh, trailer of the coming attraction. I mean, all we see now is through a mirror dimly. One day, we're going to see face to face the Lord Jesus Christ. So we should not get so attached to this world. And certainly, don't fall in love with this world system. Don't love this world, neither the things that are in this world. Meaning this system of this world is going to be undone. We should view people as they are. They're precious, precious. Every person we meet is a soul, a soul. They have a body. They'll not be judged by their body because they are a soul. They're an eternal being. One day in eternity, they will spend that time either in the presence of the glory of God or in the horrors of hell. Every soul's precious. And who am I? Who are you? If you're a believer, if you've been born again, you're a citizen of heaven, the kingdom. 
You are a citizen of heaven and Christ rules in your heart. Now you follow a king and his name is King Jesus. He is king of kings. He's a Lord of lords. He commands and we obey. He demands and we say, we're your slaves. We have no problem. His his commandments are not burdensome. We say, yes, Lord. So when we come to this book, what we realize is it's real. I hope you've come to see that what's coming in the days that we've been shown in Revelation is real. I don't want you to think, yeah, it's real, but it's, it's really not that relevant, is it? Is it relevant? It's not here yet. One day it's coming, but is it relevant for now? Let's just think that through for a moment, okay? Just go with me through this exercise. It's Adam and Eve. There they are after the fall. They blew it. They got two boys. They raised those two boys and they love those two boys. And it's not easy raising those boys because they're raising two little sinners. And every time they have to correct one of those little boys or discipline one of those little boys or spank one of those little boys, they remember we would not have had to do this had it not been for our sin. Here they are with their little boys, raised them up to manhood watching them grow, proud of what they're becoming until the day comes when one brother is so jealous of another brother that he literally murders him. And here's Adam and Eve. And this really happened. How it happened exactly, we don't know, but we can certainly, certainly put ourselves there. At the first cemetery that ever existed, buried that little boy that's grown up to a man that they love by the name of Abel. Knowing not only is their son dead, but their other son murdered him. Did it matter to them that in the future, heaven would meet earth? Did it matter to them that the promise in the garden that God made, that though you've sinned through your seed, I will send a Savior? And I'll redeem you. Did it matter that there would be a future event called the cross that they could put their trust in that would save them in their current situation and make sense of what was going on in that graveyard? Well, think about Moses. Here Moses is in Egypt in the luxury of Pharaoh's palace. I can't even imagine what all he knew and what all he learned and what all he had, right? He's in Pharaoh's palace. He's been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. But he chooses, he chooses the reproaches of Christ as greater riches than all the treasure of Egypt. Did it matter to Moses that one day heaven would meet earth? That the Lord Jesus Christ would leave the glory of the celestial kingdom, walk the dirty, dusty streets of Israel, in order that he might redeem us from the curse? Did it matter to Moses what was coming in the future? Was it relevant to Moses? How about Abraham? You remember he was told, take your son, your only son, and offering him up. And he took his only son, Isaac, that was promised to him, the promised son, up to a mountain. And you know what Abraham knew? He said God would provide a lamb. Did it matter to Abraham that one day in the future, heaven would meet earth? Did it matter for us 
It certainly did. We look back at the cross of that event, how that Jesus died in our place, and we are grateful that He is worthy. We're not, so that He lived sinlessly, died on a cross that He didn't deserve in order that we might be saved. He took our place, and in our place, died, but also rose again, defeating death. Does it matter? Yes, yes, yes. And so when we look at a future event, when heaven is coming to earth and all is remade, does that future event matter now? How about John, who's in a prison for the preaching of Christ? This is why, number one, as I'm still in the introduction here, um, by the way, I have three points and I'm only covering one today, all right? So rest easy. Number one, we don't want to be earthbound. We don't want to be so bound to this earth that we forget that there is glory to come. Not so in love with this world that we forget that we're going to leave it. The enemy rules this world. We live in a bad neighborhood, but don't fall so much in love with this world that you're not ready to leave it now because he's coming back quickly. But also, don't be a space cadet with your head in the clouds and thinking that heaven's our home and this earth is just a landfill. And what do you do with landfills? You trash them. And I think it's very important for us to realize that though we are not citizens of this world, we're citizens of another world, we ought not simply just trash this world. Let me give you an example of what I mean here, an illustration from history. Israel was captured. They were taken to a land called Babylon. It was there in Babylon that God gave a promise, if you seek me there in Babylon where you don't belong, where you are not citizens, if you seek me there, you'll find me, if you'll seek me with all of your heart. And know this, I'm going to restore all of your treasures. I'm going to restore you back to your home. But while you're in exile, while you are in a foreign land, Jeremiah 29.5, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, Eat their produce. Take wives. Have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find welfare. In other words... You're not in your homeland, but what you will be in that foreign land is an outpost of the promised land. You know what we are here on earth? Our lives are outposts of the world that is to come. Our hearts are where Christ rules and reigns. In Colossians 1, we're told, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness, and He's transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Therefore, as believers, knowing that we are citizens of a world that is to come, we don't separate here the sacred from the secular. In fact, one of the best things that this world could have in view are a bunch of believers who are outposts of that heaven that's coming down to earth. In fact, Jesus said this, let them see your good works so that they might glorify your Father in heaven. What this world right now needs and what it must have from us is not just our orthodoxy, not just our right doctrine, but our orthodoxy, and that is our right duty to live godly lives. 
more than what we know, it's what we show. We need to know the right thing, but we must show it as well because we are little outposts of the coming heaven, a trailer of a common attraction. And I'll tell you, I'm not in, I'm not in high def, I'm not even in 4K yet. Heaven's going to be much greater than I can demonstrate. But it is my responsibility and yours as well right now in this world to say, this isn't all there is. Proven by the way we live. It's not just putting a bumper sticker on our car that says, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. I'm glad you laughed because I think that's what the world does. What proves that we really belong to another world is that we live like it. That we long for it. At Foundations Dinner, we have folks from all over. I love to ask this question. Where's the favorite place that you've ever lived? Where's the favorite place you ever lived? And so you get to hear where people lived and what was their favorite place. And Last week, a family said, we're from the Ukraine. And that's our favorite place. And I want to say to the family that came from the Ukraine, what I told them there, we love you, and we're wrapping around anybody that we'll, God will bring into our church that we can love. But we don't blame you for loving Ukraine more than you love Fleming Island. Or if you're from uh, some of the little towns, Possum Junction. I love Possum Junction, someone says. It's the small little town. Where do you love? Where do you live? Where do you long for? We ought to live in such a way that heaven is proven to be our longing by the way in which we make our decisions. If it's relevant, it will be real. If it's real, it will be relevant. We live in a world, we live for the next world, but we have to train our hearts toward heaven. It's not normal or natural for us. Even as believers, as we've been made citizens of heaven, we have to train our hearts for that next world. This is why we need to talk about it a lot, sing about it more, testify about it when we comfort one another with the words that Jesus is coming back. It's not something that we should just discuss when we talk about Revelation or when we're in a particular uh, setting. I think it's something that we have to keep our minds on. We have to train our children for. We have to train our own hearts for. C.S. Lewis said, we've not been trained this way. Our whole education tends to fix our mind on this world. Think about it. When you were in preschool, you didn't think about heaven. You thought about animal crackers, I guess, and what was coming on TV. If you're a preschooler now, it's what can I get on the tablet? It's not what is in the next world. It's not what we thought about in grade school. It's not what we thought in high school. When will our hearts be turned towards this next world? They have to be trained. They have to be trained. Lewis also said, those who've done the most in this world have thought most about the next world. I would agree with that. We see the New Testament saints living this way, don't we? The New Testament saints lived as if Jesus would return in their lifetime. You know why? They hoped he would. They were believing that it was close by. How do we live as if it is near, the time is near? How do we live in such a way that we take all our revelation, all this knowledge that we've gained, and do something with it? Not just hoard it, not just bury it. How do we take this treasure that is prophecy, and how do we live it? How do we keep it? Well, there's three ways. So if you're taking those three ways right here, number one, keep the word. Number two, worship God. Number three, share the gospel. 
If you didn't get the last two, that's okay. Those are for time to come. I'm going to cover this one. Keep the word. Look with me again in verse 7. Verse 7 of Revelation 22. If you're there, say amen. I hope you have your Bibles there. Keep, keep the words of this prophecy. And I want to focus on the word keep for just a moment. Keep is in the present participle active. It means this, you continue to keep. So the word of the prophecy is something that you keep. Now the word of prophecy is what? We said it's the book of Revelation and you ought to be correct. Prophecy also concerns everything that God has said in his word. It's not only things that are coming, but things that have already come. Prophecy is not only a predictive source, it is also a source of past history. In other words, God tells us what has happened. He tells us what's happening. He tells us what's going to happen. All is prophecy. Don't just think about prophecy in future tense. We are to keep prophecy, yes, what we've been taught in the book of Revelation, but that's very specific. In general, all of the scripture of God is prophecy. It's to be kept. Kept. The idea is to keep intact. To keep intact. Uh, We were driving down the interstate on I-95, I think around Georgia, South Carolina time frame, and I happened to notice on the side of the road a beautiful bureau. And then, just to maybe a mile down the road, a beautiful dresser, and then a mattress, and then a bed frame. Two miles up the road, it looked like a brand new washing machine. And I thought, I wonder what the conversation is going to be like between that husband and wife. When they show up at their new house, and somebody forgot to close the door on the back of the moving truck. They did not keep things intact. The idea of keeping the word means that you are keeping all of it. Keeping the prophecy is not just part of it. To speak it negatively, don't meddle with it. Don't meddle with it. In fact, do you have Revelation 22 open? Drop down and look in verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Here's the warning. It's a stern warning. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. I don't believe this is exaggeration. I think God takes very serious his word. Don't add. And verse 19, and if anyone takes away from the words of this book of the prophecy, God will take his share in the tree of life, in the holy city, which are described in this book. Don't mess with the word. Don't mess with the Bible. Don't mess with the prophecy. Paul told the Galatians, there are folks in the church messing with the gospel. They're messing with the word. I wish those who unsettle you about these things would emasculate themselves. In Ephesians, Paul told the church, alarming, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. This is Paul's really broken heart saying, I know I'm about to leave. And I know when I leave, wolves are coming outside, inside the church, and they're going to not spare the flock. But even more troubling, verse 30, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. I know that there are going to be wolves coming. They want what you have. They're going to try to steal you away. But even among you, among the church, 
Uh, I've quoted Lewis in the fiction Screwtape Letters. Lewis describes maybe some conversations demons have on how they attack Christians. And on one occasion in that book, he tells the story of how the devil is speaking with his associates, demons, and he says, one of the greatest allies at present is the church itself. You would think the devil would not say that. Lewis, are you, are you sure? The devil goes on to say in screw tape letters, remember fiction, do not misunderstand me. I do not mean that the church as we see it spread out throughout time and space and rooted in eternity, eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempter uneasy. In other words, I'm not talking about the church that understands its rootedness in all of eternity and its banner is the truth. That church makes me uneasy. It should make us all uneasy. We should be that church that holds the banner up that says, this is the truth. It is the banner under which we march and it is the one truth that is our creed and that makes hell shudder. And it's why Satan is vehemently attacking it, not only from the outside, but raising up enemies within the church who add to the word of God and are wanting to dismantle it and mess with it and even take away from it. So this is really relevant. Spoke, spoken negatively, keep this prophecy, don't mess with it. Spoken positively, do trust it. Do trust it. Well, that's easy for you to say, Pastor. You believe this, you've studied it, and you preach it, and it's your in your best interest to tell us to trust it. Well, let me give you some reasons to trust it. Let me give you some reasons to trust it. Look with me again in verse 6. The angel said, these words are trustworthy and true. These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits, the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. In other words... Here's why I want you to think about keeping this book and keeping it intact. By keeping it intact, yielding to it, and obeying it. Because it's trustworthy and true. It's trustworthy and true. Put it to the test. Where has it failed? Where has one part of the Word of God failed? Kingdoms come, kingdoms fall. Jesus said, not one little part of my Word will pass away. You can depend on it. It's not only true, it's the truth. Way back in the Old Testament, Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than even gold. The word of God, the prophecy that we keep, then fine gold, sweeter even than honey. Moreover, by them your servant is warned in Keeping them, in keeping them, there is great reward. This book is trustworthy and true. You say, well, it sounds like you're just engaging in another circular argument. You're using the Bible to prove the Bible. Well, what is your source of truth? My Bible tells me it's trustworthy and true, and the reason is because it is trustworthy and true. It's not a circular argument. At that point, it is the revelation of a holy God, which leads me to this. It is revealed by God. Look with me again in verse 6. These words are trustworthy and true in the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophet. Now, the spirits of the prophet doesn't mean that the spirits have different 
prophets have different spirits. We're talking about one spirit per prophet. That is the, the soul of that prophet. That God used the prophets in their own giftings and in their own abilities to give us what is the word of God. He sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. That's no different than what Peter said. Peter said it this way. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, no one has ever given us a word from God that is actually the word of God because they wanted to or will to, but because God carried them along. It's what Paul said. Paul said all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Therefore, therefore, I can trust it because it is trustworthy and true. It has been given to me by God. I don't need to add to it, which is very helpful, very helpful, because I have a clear word, and I can try it with other parts of the clear word, and I can try it among other believers of this word as good Bereans to test what is so. That's why I want you to have your Bible with you. I want you to see, is that, is that guy making that up, or is that from the Scripture? Like Someone said, where do you get some of that stuff? From the Bible. Like, I get to swim in it all week for weeks. Praying through it, meditating on it. The Word speaks to me from this Word. You don't hear me get up and do this. Hey, y'all, I had a dream. I have some dreams, y'all. And you never heard me tell you my dreams. For five or six years, I don't know how long... When I first became pastor, I had a recurring dream. I dreamed I was at this particular church. It was a big conference. There were tons of pastors there. And I was sitting on the front row, and I was asked to come and preach. Come up here, Scott, and preach. This was a recurring dream. I had no Bible, no notes, and nothing to say. That is not a dream. That is a nightmare. And there are two tragedies that you can come upon. One is having something to say and no one to say it to, or having nothing to say with a lot of people who need something said. That was me in that dream. This is the first time you've ever heard of it, I think. You know why? My dreams don't matter. My visions don't matter. Neither do anyone else's. The only reason someone has dreams and visions is because they think they're more, they're more informed than God. The reason that someone reads a passage of Scripture and then takes off and they're on tangent and then says what they want to say instead of what the Bible says is because they're smarter than God. The reason someone doesn't just stick to this text is because they're more creative than God. Are you more creative than God? Smarter than God? No more than God? If you have someone say to you, I want to share with you the vision God gave me. I want you to do what I did when I was a kid when someone wanted to tell me something I didn't need to hear. And that was, na 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 And then run. Like literally, Run. That is scary stuff, y'all. That is scary stuff. We have a Bible that is trustworthy, true. It's been revealed by God. It's been given to holy men called prophets. And it is, every time put to the test, tried and true. It's another sermon, lots of other sermons. In fact, I did a little bit this past Wednesday night. It goes to the validity of Scripture. But I want to move on, and here it is. It's ready to be fulfilled. Look, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent an angel to show his servants what soon must take place. You go, there it is. If it's true, then why didn't it soon take place? Well, just remember this. That word soon is quickly. 
Jesus said it the same way. I'm coming soon or coming quickly. He said, well, it wasn't real quick, was it? I mean, this is 2,000 years ago. Well, wait a minute. It wasn't 2,000 years ago. It was only two days ago. What do you mean two days ago? Come on now. Because Jesus said, uh, uh, you know, through Peter, the Spirit said, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So it may be 2,000 years for us, but it's two days in heaven. And, and quickly doesn't mean like right away. It means when he comes, it's coming in a moment. You better be ready. And that's just how the New Testament believers live their lives. First century Christians live their lives in 21st century Christians who live their lives. In, the, in light of the fact that any moment he can return and look at the world in which we live. I mean, look at the world in which you live. Have you seen what's going on, speaking of the Ukraine, with the weapons that we now have and are amassing on each other? We are living, no doubt, I believe, in the last of the last days. So there are blessings here, too. Why else study this? I study it because it's trusted and true. It's from God. It's ready to be fulfilled. But notice this. There's a blessing. Don't you want to be blessed? Don't you want to be blessed? I love how Revelation bookends with the beginning saying there's a blessing to those who read this aloud. And at the end of the book, there's a blessing to those who keep it. Revelation starts this way, grace and peace to you, grace, 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 I need grace. It ends this way, the grace of the Lord be with you. There's a blessing in reading it. There's a blessing in reading it and then keeping it. We can trust it. Trust and obey. There is no other way. That's what we are doing. What are we obeying when we obey the Bible? What are we obeying? Well, I need to obey the Bible. Well, let's take that a step further. That's not that we're obeying the Bible as much as we're obeying our king. It's not about obeying it away. It's about obeying our, our Lord. This is the, the, the challenge of apologetics. Though I love apologetics, I listen and read a lot on apologetics, that oftentimes people are defending a way or a system or a religion or a thought or a, logic, a logical reasoning um, a, a road. We as believers have a master. We have a king. He's the king of kings and Lord of lords. He gives commands. It's very simple. Our king commands we obey. People get baptized. Why get baptized? King said to that's pretty simple, isn't it? King said to. This is why you have to be a little patient with us if you don't believe like we believe. You have to be a little patient with us. We ask you to be patient with us. Because we do not have any wiggle room on gender issues. Our king said he created us male and female. But we don't have any room to go any other direction. Our king said marriage is between a man and a woman and for a lifetime. And because he's our king, and because he's our master, we, we just don't have any way out of that. Even if we wanted to get out of that, we don't have any way. This isn't up for grabs for us. This isn't about us coming um, around and, and thinking through with open minds. The problem is some people's minds are so open, their brains have fallen out, and they've gone crazy. But it's not just about these moral issues on the outside, it's the... Uh, Serious sins on the inside of the church that we need to address with the Word of God. It's marriage. And you can, and I can, we can see this world, like I said early on, as a landfill that we trash. Yeah, this world is terrible. It's wicked. It is going to hell in a handbasket. It is absolutely gross. But, but, I've heard Christians say, I I know God says, but, I know God says that divorce is a sin, that he hates it, but doesn't he want me happy? 
No. He wants you holy. Which means love your husband, love your wife. Well, it's hard. Who promised you a rose garden? That, that's a song, isn't it? I think my dad used to have that play on our AM radio. No one did. What about your work? What about your money? What about gossip? We have, in the church, I think, perfected the art of gossip online. I wonder how it is that we have come to think it's okay to talk about another man's wife the way we do. And what I mean by that is the bride of Christ. I don't see the world attacking the church as much as I see the church attacking the church. I don't get on a lot of social media. I have other people do that for me for all the reasons that I'm sure you're, you're well aware of. But I get brought posts sometimes. I get brought up to speed regularly on what's going on. And I'm appalled sometimes at some of you. And how you think that you could talk about another man's wife the way you do online. You may not agree with the way they do their music. You may not agree with the way that their philosophy of ministry lands them. You may not agree with a lot of things concerning the bride of Christ outside. But if they are gospel-centered, Christ-centered, they belong to Christ. And they can be and lovingly should be corrected, but not online. The reason I'm saying this is because you can tell it's under my skin how that believers will not approach one another and encourage one another and love each other and even lovingly correct one another, but will attack each other. There are two things that we ought to fight for, y'all. The New Testament says, fight for the faith once for all delivered from the saints. We ought to stand for the truth, stand against the error and speak about it. In fact, if it's public, we should be public about it. I get that. However, we should also fight for the unity of the church. And where there is a net, where is there an occasion for disunity, we should address that personally so that brothers can be reconciled, sisters can be reconciled. And if someone is erring in their way, going away from the truth, this faith that's revealed to the saints, this gospel truth from the Word of God, then lovingly we have to correct that. Don't mess with the Word of God. Don't miss it. Keep it. I think about Martin Luther, Martin Luther, who was told there are two sources of truth. And some of you have come from the tradition that Luther came out of. And you were taught in the dogmas and teaching that the traditions of the church are equal to the Holy Scriptures. Luther came to a different conviction. That there was only one source of truth. True truth. And that is the revelation that has come in 66 books, the canon the Bible actually, he had a little problem with James, but that's a whole other story. He was told by um, some believers, uh, excuse me, uh, professors of Christ in his church, that he should recant what he believed about the gospel, being by grace alone and in Christ alone, and what he learned from the scriptures. Luther stood up, he said, unless I'm convinced by the scriptures or by clear reason, For I do not either trust the Pope or in councils alone. 
since it is well known that they have both erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted them, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. What we need to do with all this information that we received about what is to come is to recognize that we live in a world that certainly needs those who are outposts of heaven, who tells the world heaven is coming to earth, and we, we, we live underneath the banner of this truth, and we cannot do any other. It guides our life. It guards our heart. It keeps our conscience. And though we keep it, it really keeps us. It's our banner. We are at Fort Bragg this Friday and Saturday, and I was really intrigued by some of the mottos of our special operations units. I love what some of them say. Some of you know what the U.S. Navy SEALs motto is. There's, the only easy day was yesterday. Love some of these mottos. One from the 160th, death waits in the dark. That's scary if you're on the wrong side of America. The Marines Raiders motto, always faithful, always forward. U.S. Air Force pararescue, so that others may live. I love all these mottos. I could keep on going. Mess with the best, die like the rest. I mean, something wells up in you as a man. When you recognize these are American service members who are studying war to keep us safe. They march underneath those banners and the banner of the American flag. But we also march under a banner. We're at war. We know it. We're at war and not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, those forces that are spiritual. Some time ago, I came across this poem that I'm sure many of you've heard. It's the Fellowship of the Unashamed. That's the title. It's attributed to an African missionary, but probably, probably we just don't know. So let's just say anonymous. But here's how it goes. I'm a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit as power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right. First tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith. I lean on his presence. I walk by patience. I live by prayer. I labor by power. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he'll have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. 
So take the word of God, put it on the wall for your family to read, buy a large print Bible so your kids can read it and understand it, so that they can read it more than they read any fiction novel, so they love the adventure of God more than any game they can play, let they know that there is a God who has given his son for their life and rescues the sinner who is repentant and will follow Christ. Bring it to church with you, mark it up, write in it, know it, remember it, meditate on it, share it, quote it, text it, put it online, take this word of God, but most of all, keep it, obey it, love it, don't ever let down. It's the objective truth. By keeping it, John says, we prove we're saved. And by this, all men will know you're my disciples if we keep his commandments. Don't seal it up. We'll get to that later. Don't seal it up. Leave it open. Because the tribulation that you read about that's coming, it's already here. John faced it. So when John went back to his barrack that night, after receiving the revelation, or wherever he went, and he sat down, he knew that what God had promised for the future is very sufficient to carry us through whatever we're going through now. That's why we have to know it. Because it's not just Adam and Eve that stands at a grave. Some of you have gone through that with your kids. You visit your kids in prison. And you've gone through what we were never meant to go through. We were never meant to go through sin, grief, and mourning, but sin has brought grief and mourning and death. But there's rescue. And one day there will be ultimate redemption. And that's why this book has to stay open, has to stay known, and we have to keep it. Because it actually keeps us in this wicked world. Father, thank you that you've given us this book. Thank you that in it we find joy in our work, comfort in our trials, great usefulness in this world, consolation in our sickness, hope in our death. May we live in such a way that we leave great evidence behind us when we're buried, that we have held this as our banner and have great confidence in the day of Christ's return so that we might receive a great crown in the day of recompense. Thank you. In Jesus' name.